You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So Revelation chapter 4, last week you remember we entered the throne room of God. If anyone doesn't have a Bible, by the way, put your hand up, someone will get you a Bible if you need one. There we go, thank you. But yeah, so we were in the throne room of God, we looked at this wonderful, if not slightly incomprehensible, vision of the throne room of God. We noted that so much in our lives actually flow from this place. We pointed out that this is in fact, I would say, the most central and defining feature of our entire worldview. The fact that there is an occupied throne in heaven, all that lives and breathes come under its authority, regardless of whether they realise it or not. So I do not want us to enter this chapter lightly. I don't want us to simply just be tantalised by looking at these slightly otherworldly things. It comes with responsibility and a weight of glory. Often you'll find the glory of God described as being heavy in the Old Testament. And this is the concept. We're dealing with things that are so far above us and beyond us, but yet the Lord has chosen to reveal them to us in his word. Just to give us an idea, if you think about it like this, Think how many throne rooms we have across the world in man's kingdoms today. Some of them just wonderful, glorious throne rooms. And the fact of the matter is, most of us, if not all of us, will never enter any of them. We'll never even be allowed close to them, and nor will most people. In the ancient Near East, it was actually a capital offence to enter the king's throne room. Do you remember the story of Esther? under the Persian king. Let me just read to you Esther 4, verse 11. It says, All the king's servants, this is the Persian king, and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, that's his inner chambers, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he shall be put to death. This is, what, this is how far of a, a chasm there was between even a man, an earthly king, and his people. If you even enter his throne room without being invited, you're put to death. That is what man's kingdom is like. And we will never enter a throne room probably in our lifetimes here. Yet that is not how our God operates. The throne room of all throne rooms, we are given here a glimpse into it. And through Jesus Christ, we can enter it boldly. And now for the next couple of chapters in this book, well, this chapter and chapter five, we are going to be in that throne room. We are going to see the indescribable. We are going to hear the inner sanctum, you could say, the workings of the king of kings and his holy council here. Now, you've ever heard the expression, it's always winter, never Christmas. That was one of C.S. Lewis's expressions to do with the fact that in this world, things are dark right now always winter, never Christmas, as the evil queen, the ice queen, or or forget her name, was ruling over Narnia. But one day Aslan, the lion, the king was going to come, and then it would be summer. We have expressions like that. Winter is coming is another expression. I know many of you probably think that's from a popular TV show. It's actually not. It's a very common biblical phrase, the winter of God's judgments, it's called, and that's the idea that it's getting at there. The Bible generally uses either that term or it'll say the night The night is upon us. Night and darkness is coming. And you know, if you use that imagery, it's darkest before the dawn. You've heard that expression? That means that just before the end of the night, it gets really, really dark, and then you see the sun rising and the new day begins. This is the imagery that I want us to have in our mind now as we are going through the book of Revelation because there's no way to sugarcoat what we are going to encounter in this book. Things are going to get very dark for the world, not for God's people, but for those who reject God at this time, 
But this is all leading up to the culmination of history. That new, when that new day dawns, when the sun comes in all his righteousness, and then things, as we know it, will be gone, and we'll be into that new era of history, and it is amazing. We're also going to see some pretty deep theology. For all of you Bible nerds out there if you, who like to really get into it deep, we're going to see some of that today. I'm going to try and show you a few things that are just fascinating. We could have go into them for hours on end, some of this stuff, but I'm hopefully going to just give you a glimpse and you can track it down on your own. So let's read. We're going to read the whole chapter again like we did because we need to have the whole vision in our heads as we get into this. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardist in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the centre and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honour and give thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives for ever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things because of your will they existed and were created. It's just an amazing chapter, that. So let's just jump straight into it. We did the first three verses last week, if you're new. If you weren't here last week, I'm going to miss the first three verses. That's last week's study. You can get back, get that online. I only did those three verses because verse 4 requires a little bit more time to be spent on it. So let's look at it. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So we read this last time, but now I want to look at it in a little bit more depth. Now, for those of you who have studied Revelation, you'll know this is one of those areas that there's multiple different views, a lot of commentaries have different opinions. The big question is, who are these 24 elders, or who do they represent? Now, it's interesting, I find, that the two main other visions that we get in the Bible of the throne room of God, Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1, we read about the living creatures with these unusual creatures in their faces, we hear nothing of the 24 elders in these other two visions of God's throne room. They seem to be noticeably absent. Now, there are two main categories, really, of who these could be. They are either humans or they are angels. That is really the only options we are really left with. And it's just as a caveat, you can't really be dogmatic over it with some of these things. Uh, You have to be gracious in, in disagreements. Good scholars will have different views. 
I'm going to just show you the view that I favour, and I'm going to give you a number of reasons why I take that view. For me, the view that I lean towards is that these are the, the 24 elders are representative of the redeemed church in heaven, the New Testament church in heaven that comes into existence in Acts chapter 2, requires baptism of the Spirit to enter it, and will be taken to be with the Lord when he blows the trumpet and shouts for his bride. Now, of course, this view strongly favours what is known as the pre-tribulation gathering or rapture of the church. You've probably heard that term before, and that's why it's so controversial, of course, because if you hold to a differing perspective, which is absolutely fine if you do, you will not agree with this view that I'm taking. But I just ask you to just hold off on those preconceived ideas. We don't want to allow our already existing scheme of theology to, to colour our interpretation solely to try and fit our already conceiving views. I'm going to give you ten reasons why I think the best interpretation of this text is that these are the redeemed church in heaven. So that's what I'll do, and then I'll leave that with you, and you can take, the, take that as you wish. So my first reason is what I just briefly mentioned there. The 24 elders are not seen in any other Old Testament vision of the throne room of God, which would imply that as the events of this coming future time of judgment are about to unfold, they are in a new addition to the throne room of God. That's a logical conclusion that follows that we did not see them in the two previous visions, even though we did see these other creatures and we did not see them there. Number two, these chapters, four and five in Revelation, are preparing the world for the coming king to unleash his judgments on the earth and return to take his kingdom. That will start in Revelation chapter six and will take us through to chapter 19 and 20 in this book. It is a period that the Bible calls the day of the Lord's wrath. And as I've explained a few times, and we will go explain again as we go through this book, there is no purpose for the church to experience the specific wrath of the Lord against the ungodly. Yes, the church is promised trials and tribulations. We are promised that we may be called to even give our lives for the Lord. Yet, we are not promised that we will have to undergo the specific wrath of the Lord that is poured out on the ungodly at this time. Therefore, the church, makes sense, would not be there. The third reason is that it does complement the promise that we looked at to the church. In Remember those Re Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the promise to the church at Philadelphia that the church would be kept from the hour, the time of testing that will come upon the earth. So within the immediate context of Revelation chapter 3, the fact that we see this in Revelation chapter 4 fits. The, four, the fourth reason is they are actually elsewhere distinguished from being angels in the Bible. When we read Revelation chapter 5, you'll see that they actually say the living creatures, the 24a, and all the angels. So the, the angels are often mentioned as a different category, which would say that maybe this is a different group. Fifth reason, 24 in the Bible is used as a representative number of priesthood. We find this in the Old Testament. The priesthood was divided into 24 different courses, and those 24 represented the entire priesthood. So we already have that precedent set for us. The church is a priesthood. Number six, the word for elders is presbyterios in Greek. That's where we get the English word Presbyterian or that sort of system of church government. It is virtually synonymous with the term elder, as you see it translated in the New Testament, which is used in the context of leadership in the New Testament church. 
So the language there would lead us to that conclusion too. Number seven, and this is for me a key line of argument, it fits the immediate context of the flow of Revelation the best. In Revelation chapters two and three, it is focused on the church, that is the things which are. Revelation chapter four started by giving us that clue, we are now dealing with the things that come after these things. Do you remember I made a big deal of that phrase as we studied this book? The things that come after these things. So it fits the flow of Revelation and it fits the promises to the church. And this is what I mean. I'll just summarize. These are all my last three points. We see the 24 elders on thrones. In Revelation chapter 3, 21, sitting on thrones was one of the things that the Lord promised his overcoming church. We see the 24 elders dressed in white, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we see that white robes was one of the things that were promised to the overcoming church. And then we see them wearing crowns. And the word is a stephanos, that is a victor's crown, not a, not a diadem, not a royal crown in that sense. So this is a crown that is the same crown used for rewards given to the New Testament church. And this is also a promise in Revelation chapter 2.10 and 3.11. And this would strongly indicate that the judgment for believers' works has already taken place at this point and their crowns have been distributed at this point. So that, again, fits very nicely. The fact that you have those two, three chapters listing the specific promises that Christ gives to his church for those that overcome, and then you see those exact promises fulfilled within the 24 elders within the context of Revelation, for me, is a very strong argument that fits very well with the entire book that the way I'm going to teach you this book. So contextually, chronologically, and I would say theologically, a very strong case can be made that this is the redeemed church in heaven represented by these 24 elders. I wouldn't stake my life on it. I'm open to other opinions, but that is the view that I will favor and I will teach here. So that's the 24 elders. If you study Revelation, you'll find entire books written just on that one identification. But that I've summarized for you there the main arguments that I want to give. So let's look at chapter verse 5 and 6. It says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now this is a very unusual scene. It's very hard to picture what is going on here. As we do when we read something, we try and form pictures in our minds, don't we, to try and do that. It's very hard to form a picture of this, and I believe John is struggling with the language here too, which is why he keeps saying, it's like this, it's like that, almost implying this is the best way I can try and describe it to you, but what I'm seeing is something so otherworldly, that's the best that I can do. But flashes of lightning, sounds of thunder, often throughout the Bible you'll find that these things accompany God's presence. You'll find these just these awesome, awe-inspiring sounds and lights. Do you remember in Exodus 19 when God came down to Mount Sinai to give uh, the law to Moses and his glory was going to descend on that mountain and it, and it was a dangerous time. He said to the Israelites, make sure you put boundaries up. No one is to approach my glory in an un unsanctified state, in a body that is not fit to be in the presence of my glory or else my glory will consume you. That is what we're this is who God is, what we're dealing with. He is so awesome. Let me just read to you that from Exodus 19, because you'll see, notice the, the similarities. 
It came about on the third day, this is Moses, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a loud trumpet sound, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They stood at the foot of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. The Lord is awesome. There is no, there's no sugarcoating it. He is awesome and terrifying in that sense because we are not used to something that is so magnificent. We don't really have any point of comparison for that. But this is the God that we're dealing with here. In, the book, in this book, Revelation, and throughout the Bible, thunder and these sorts of illustration or things that accompany God's presence, they often come before a time of judgment or, or when something very significant is happening. And that tells us that what we are about to see in Revelation chapter 5 and the rest of the book is an extremely significant thing for the history of this world. They also communicate the awe and power that is associated with God's throne. He mentions the seven lamps, which are the seven spirit of God. If you remember from our earlier studies, Revelation chapter 1 and 2, we, we encountered the lamps, and I explained to you that this is a, a, a way to describe the Holy Spirit. It tells us that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, is present and in this throne room vision, and I have called this a pre-battle scene. This is almost like a, a briefing before the coming judgment of the day of God. It says, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. I'll be frank with you, sitting in my office studying this, you read it, you read it again, you read it again, and you think, no, I've got nothing. It's hard to really picture what we're describing here. I mean, these are angelic beings that obviously we are talking about. These are something in the creation of God. And whether these are literal descriptions or they are the best that John can do to describe what he is seeing, I'm not overly fussed about that. The fact is, it's very clear, these are, they are called living beings, or it's, they're angels, basically. But we are given clues from elsewhere in the Bible. I want to just show you what they are, and then I'm going to try and show you why I believe they are here and they are mentioned in this way because it, it helps you to see, like we've always said, Revelation is basically the fulfillment of everything else that's gone forth in the Bible. And we are going to see that now with these creatures. We see two other visions of these creatures. Like I mentioned, Isaiah chapter 6, let me read it to you. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, I, we did this last week, I believe, too, but I'll read the whole pas passage. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So that would be the people, one of the descriptions, and they are identified for us there as seraphim. Seraphim are an order of angel. Ezekiel chapter 1, we see this again. I'll read it, 5 to 10. This is another vision of the throne room. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings. So this is, identifies them for us as the same living beings. There, and there was their appearance. They had a human form. Each of them had four faces, four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. They gleamed like burnished bronze. Under the wings on their four sides were human hands. And as for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Um, and as for their form, they, they had a face of a lion on the right, face of a bull on the left, and they all four had the face of an eagle. 
Now, I'm reading that quick because obviously those details, I'm, I'm trying to just help you to see the similarities there. There are some differences too, which would lead me to the conclusion that what John is in fact seeing is a composite of both seraphim and cherubim together in the throne room. These seem to be the highest order of angels and he is seeing both of them. They are specifically charged, they are the beings that were specifically charged with matters relating to God's glory and to the holiness of God. That is why they stand and cry out, day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We, in our language, we would say they are the throne room attendants of God. That is the best I can do to describe this. But there is much more going on here. Again, we're not just given this vision, I believe, to, to, to realise this is unusual, there's these creatures that we don't know about. For most of us who live in a world that's very naturalistic, even the mention of a spiritual component to reality like this just makes us shut down and close, close off. However, the very fact that we proclaim and sit here and say that God exists means that that is not what the world is actually like because God is spirit, so we have to have at least be open to the acceptance that these things are totally possible within God's universe and as Christians who believe the Bible, we just proclaim that the Lord has told us they are, in fact, here and that is truth. But that's another issue, really. Let's move on. There's so much more going on here and I want to try and just give you a glimpse of it if I can. It might not work. I'm hoping that it will. The Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, when God's glory manifested, it was called the Shekinah. It appeared as a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day with the Israelites as they moved across the Old Testament. And then eventually it settled within the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. The last time that we see these four living beings on the earth fulfilling a mission is when the glory of the Lord left the temple all those years ago in the days of Ezekiel. And this is significant. I'll read to you the text quickly. Ezekiel 10, verse 18 and 19. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gates of the Lord house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So due to the sin of the nation, God's presence left the Israelites. And it was these creatures that, whose duty was to be concerned with the glory of God who escorted the Shekinah away from the temple. That was the last time we saw them. So I would say it is no wonder now that as we are preparing to see the return of the glory of the Lord, we see these creatures at the forefront of this vision of the throne room of God again. But think about it now. When they escorted the glory of the Lord, it was the Shekinah glory, this light, this manifest presence like that. When the glory comes back, how is the glory going to appear? And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the glory comes back to this earth, it is the incarnate Lord Jesus who is that glory, who is coming back. That is, I believe, what the cherubim are here to represent on the one hand. What is about to happen in this book? It's fascinating for me that the Bible describes Satan, this enemy who is described, the deceiver, the father of lies, as being part of the order of angels, these cherubs that we've just read about. That was his original state. He was a high angel. He was a guardian of the throne room of God. 
And it says that pride was found within him. This is why God hates pride. He sees it as the foundational sin of all humanity, pride, wanting to elevate yourself onto the throne. This is what Satan ended up having form in his heart. We know he was one of these people. We know he was cast out, and we know that he went on to deceive the world. He went on to start loads of false religions all across the world. And what I find fascinating is many of what we call the teraphim, you read about them in Genesis. They were these little household idols that people used to have in the ancient Near East, and they'd bring them with them. Abraham's family did that. We, we read about it a lot. You find them all throughout the ancient Near East. They were often with the face of a lion, the face of a man, the face of a bull, the face of a calf. You go to some of the ancient Near Eastern times that were around when all this was happening. You ever seen these? These are the, the gates of Assyria. You'll find these in the British Museum and different museums around the world. One thing you may notice is that these things consist of all the elements of these living creatures, the, all these different four faces. If Satan was like one of these, it kind of fits that he would start having men worship these things because that is the very reason that he was expelled from heaven and these are his people. Now, you can, you know, if you've ever seen a pack of tarot cards, I'm not advising you see a pack of tarot, tarot cards, there is a pack in a tarot cards that will have these four living creatures on them. They're considered the elemental. You see, I'm just showing you how these things are used in the occult now too. And that fits with the identification of Satan being one of these and trying to seek worship instead of God. This was his sin. It's fascinating. However, more in the biblical tradition, they are actually, they've become associated with uh, different books of the New Testament. Let me just read to that, that verse to you again. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was that of a flying eagle. There is much speculation, of course, now in, in the church, I'm talking about now, forget about those other things I just said, of, as to what these represent in the Bible and how do we interpret them. Church tradition has always associated them with the Gospels, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and thus they would, each face would symbolise a different focus in each different gospel. You'll find it all throughout medieval art. This is from the Book of Kells. You ever heard of the Book of Kells? You can see it in Dublin, I believe, today. It's a very famous medieval manuscript. This is, this is the, the cover piece for the Book of the Gospels. If you can see there, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but one's with the face of a man, one an eagle, one a lion, one an ox. It's called a tetramorph. It actually became so common that they came up with a name for it. You'll see it engraved all over buildings. Here we go, another one here. You can see the four things carved onto this. It's actually a book cover, this, but you'll find it on buildings and statues, medieval manuscripts. It was very, very common. The understanding, although there are variations between who said what, is like this. In Matthew, you see the king being presented, the king of the Jews in that gospel. Thus, it was the lion that was associated with him. In Mark, it's the servant, the ox. The ox was a, an animal that was used for labour. Luke, he was the man. And then John, the eagle, associated with the divinity of God. And that was how the early church, there's, I think the earliest, we have second century at least, and every other century since, someone made that connection. But like I said, there were variations, so you can't be overly dogmatic. I just find it interesting. But I would say there's actually more going on here than that. And I want to try and give you just a small glimpse of that now. We know that the earthly tabernacle, what we see the Israelites moving around the wilderness with, was a copy of the heavenly, heavenly tabernacle, yes? Let me read to you. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, 
but into heaven itself now to appear before the presence of God for us. So Moses was given the vision to make the tabernacle and we are told here that it was in fact a copy of something that existed in heaven. Now stay with me on this. The whole camp of Israel was ordered to camp around this tabernacle in specific order. So they would park up in, the, in a place in the wilderness, they would, the Levites would be responsible for setting up the tabernacle and then the tribes had to camp around this tabernacle. Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, it says this, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, listen, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's households, they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. So what that is saying is that every tribe of Israel, 12 of them, had a banner. If you'd imagine, you've probably seen movies with Roman armies and they come with their flags and they always have the picture that represents their army on top of them. That's what this is, a sig- something that signifies what tribe they are from, from their father's household. Now, the Bible does not tell us what these things were. However, we have at least six or seven references in Jewish literature to what these father's household banners were. They are gleaned from the prophecy of Abraham on the 12 tribes of Israel and also Moses' final prophecy to them too. That's where they get them from. But let me just read to you. This is from Jewish, very early Jewish literature. It says, The tradition says the four standards under which Israel encamped in the wilderness. To the east, Judah. To the north, Dan. To the west, Ephraim. To the south, Reuben. Were respectively a lion, an eagle, an ox and a man, while in the midst of the tabernacle there was the Shekinah glory, the divine presence of God. Now why I find this fascinating, think of what we said, it is a copy of the throne room of God, and just as we've seen in the throne room of God, we have these four living creatures with these four faces around the throne of God, in the wilderness, camped around this replica of the throne of God, we have the tribes of Israel camped under these same four living creatures' faces around the throne room of God, where God is dwelling above the mercy seat. And what do you find on the mercy seat? The cherubim, with their wings stretched across the feet. And you find it on the veil of the temple in front of that too. So you do have an exact replica, it would seem, of what is happening in the throne room. So why is this? Let's go a little deeper here, just so you can see. That's a picture there of what most people believe, roughly for the Ark of the Covenant. This is the tabernacle. It's a famous picture by a Jewish artist, if you could imagine. That is roughly what we see here. You can see the tribes of Israel camped on either side there. If you wanted to have a look at it, it would be like this. And that's basically what we have. The throne room of God with the eagle, the lion, the man, and the ox camped on every side, representing the chief tribes of the the 12 tribes of Israel. However, there's something more that I find fascinating about this. When we're reading about this in the Old Testament and they're going through the wilderness, they're not just wandering, we often think they're wandering aimlessly. Now, obviously, the Lord's teaching them lessons for 40 years, but he called them out of Egypt for a specific purpose, didn't he? It wasn't actually for the wandering. Yes, he was going to teach them what he needed them to be like through that, but it was to enter the promised land. That was the, that was the whole purpose there. So this is actually a military formation that we see here. And what do we see when they start to enter the land? We see military outputs. This, is, this will help you understand the Old Testament a lot more. They were told to go to the promised land. And what did they encounter when they found and entered the promised land? They found usurpers there. God had given them the land. It was theirs. It was by right decree, by from the Lord. But there were the Canaanites there. 
those people who rejected God and worshipped false gods, and they were there, and thus they had military campaigns. One of the other fascinating details that we find is that whilst the Levites were charged with packing up the tabernacle and carrying it into battle, we learn from the book of Judges, chapter 2, after the Joshua died, they asked the Lord, when they see the land of Canaan, who's going to go in and take the land of Canaan? And there's a very unusual detail that most people miss, and he says to them, I want Judah to be the first tribe to go in. Judah leads the charge into the promised land to, use, to take back the land that he had given for his theocratic kingdom from the usurpers. And what banner would Judah have had marching in front of them as they came into the promised land? The lion. Next week, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5, where we're going to see another lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is going to, basically, we're seeing play out in the end fulfillment what we read about in the Old Testament. Just as Judah under that lion went in to take back the kingdom, the, the land that they had been given for the kingdom, to get it away from people who were usurping it, we are going to see the ultimate lion of the tribe of Judah coming back to the earth, not just to take the specific piece of Israel, but to take the entire earth back from those who are standing against him, the Antichrist and all those who would worship him. And he's going to do, that is why he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah there and only there in this next chapter of Revelation chapter 5. That is the whole thing, I believe, of what is going on here. Now, as I was studying this, I could tell I'm only glimpsing. You know, I'm just giving you, a, that's all I could get from this. this. I could spend, we could all spend so much on that. But that is the closest, best understanding I can give of why we're being given this vision of the throne room. Because we are about to see exactly what happened with the Israelites happen again now as the Lord comes back, except for one thing. They fell. They failed. They didn't complete what they were tasked to do. The lion of the tribe of Judah will fight the battle on his own. The breath of his mouth will destroy his enemies. He will not fail. And that's the kingdom coming from that. It's just quite amazing, isn't it, really? When you, I mean, the Bible is amazing. There's no, no way around that. Let's read the next verse. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So this here is the preeminent attribute of God emphasized, the holiness. We saw it in the other vision of the throne, the angels declaring the holiness of God. This is the Hebrew word kadosh, it would be. It means something that is consecrated, set apart, something that is the opposite of common, something that is utterly unique, something that is sacred, something that is exalted above everything else, above all creation. It's emphasizing that there is an unfathomable contrast between what is divine and what is created. For me, Tozer said it the best. He said, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must also be thought of as holy. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible and unattainable. He is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity, goodness, and incomprehensible holiness. And in all this, he is uncreated, self-sufficient, and beyond the power of human thought to conceive or human speech to utter. It's from knowledge of the holy. 
This is what we mean when we say God is holy. This is why we will accept no substitute, we will accept no compromise and no alteration on who God is as revealed in the scripture. If we do, we remove that holiness down to the level of man and thus we create God in our own image. That's the danger of doing that and so many make that mistake. Yet, I would also add, it's easy for these attributes to be lost on us to sort of become mere cold abstractions because we have no way of relating to them. We, we honestly just know them by what they're not. We can kind of understand holiness because we know we're not holy. We can kind of understand purity because we know we're impure. So we, we know the opposite, if you see what I mean. However, God has exhibited these attributes for us, not in theory, not in speculation, in factual reality. For he has revealed all of his own character, all of his attributes in the person, history, life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Holiness may just be a shadow in our minds until it receives the shape and substance of the life of Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So it is only fitting that when this holiness is declared in the very throne room of God, in response, we see worship. And that is the only fitting response. Verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honour, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives for ever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. So we see the pattern here. These living creatures declare the holiness of God. They are giving God the glory that he deserves. They give thanks to this one who is sitting on the throne. It is a scene of pure adoration and worship within the very throne room of the universe, something that our eyes really shouldn't be looking at, but yet the Lord wants us to see because if that is who he is, he reveals himself to us. Notice it says twice in those verses, to him who lives forever and ever. The text literally says, to the one living into the ages of ages. This speaks to us of the eternality of God again, and this is a very strong indication of an unending eternity with him for the redeemed. It can be no other way because he is that himself. It's one of his attributes, and thus it has to be like that. And then we see the living creatures, and then the 24 elders respond, and it says they fall down in front of him. Now, as a caveat, I just want to say this is not an uncontrolled falling down, not a laughing, not a shaking. Many movements in Christianity use that verse. There was a, there was a wind of movements that swept through the UK church in the mid-90s, different blessings they were associated with that promoted all of this stuff. As a church, we've always rejected that. They used to use this verse as one of their proof texts. And for me, I would just say, let's not demean the text of what is going, demeaning what is happening here with associating it with things like that. Here, the falling down literally means to prostrate yourself. The idea that we're being given here in this vision of the throne room of God is that simply bowing down or bending the knee before such a sovereign is woefully insufficient. The 24 elders need to go more than that and thus they completely prostrate themselves before the Lord. And it says, before him who sits on the throne. This is something that you do in recognition of his character and his being. This is a way of them acknowledging symbolically the huge chasm that exists between the king and his subjects at this time. And when they are in that position, there is nothing else that they can do but worship. Okay, you're getting a glimpse of who God is. I believe he wants us to see who God is before we move on to the rest of the book of Revelation. And when confronted with the worship of these living creatures, what do they do? 
they cast their crowns before the throne. They cast their crowns before the throne. These were the crowns, I believe, given as a reward for faithful service. This is a symbolic act acknowledging that everything that they have is an extension of his grace. They didn't earn anything. It was all by his spirit for his kingdom. No one is really worthy to wear a crown in the presence of the king, a king such as this. Yet that is what he allows people to do because he is a loving God. We stand and continue through the grace of God and by that alone. And then their final declaration is this, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Their final declaration is to affirm that the Lord and the Lord alone is worthy of the praises of men. We do not worship men, we do not worship lesser Deities with a small d as the world would have them. We do not worship statues. We do not worship angels. Nothing is worthy except the Lord. Only the Lord shall receive glory, honour and power. His attributes are seen in the entire created order. The very earth keeps moving because of his will. He is the only creator. Everything else is but a creature. And that is the difference. Nothing will ever change that. He alone is independent. All else is dependent on him. And that is the acknowledgement for true and right worship, I believe, and we see the elders representing that. And as we've studied something like this, I'm going to quote the words of the Apostle Paul when he thinks about the plan of God. And he said, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He is saying that the very existence of creation is enough to condemn men. We find that in the book of Romans. And I think rightly so when you think about what it actually tells us. The heavens declare the glory of God, it says in the Bible. Yet for most people on this earth, we attribute it to the product of random time, chance, and the product of death, basically. He says, no, the one who lives forever is responsible for those things. And this is the same one who is worthy and the only one who is worthy of the praises of men. He is the one who sits on the throne of all thrones. He is the one that's crowned the king of all kings. Yet let's think about this. He is the only one that wore two kings too. He exchanged his royal crown for a crown of thorns, didn't he? That was what he wore the first time he came here. That was the crown of a king in one sense, a king who was giving his life for his people. That's what a true king does. And then the next time he comes back, which is what we're studying in this book, he will have that royal crown on his head once again, and he will be that conquering king when he returns. There's a hymn called Long Live the King. Its words are fitting for an end of this study. It says, Long live the king. He was dead, now he's risen. Long live the king. He's alive. His sins, sins are sins forgiven. Long live the king. He's the Lord. He rules in heaven. Long live the king. He's coming back soon, he's coming back for me and you, and now we wait for that day. And on our guard we watch and pray, and as we wait we sing, Long Live the King. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.